The Behavioral Corner is produced in cooperation with Retreat Behavioral Health, where healing happens. Hi and welcome, I'm Steve Martorano and this is The Behavioral Corner. You're invited to hang with us as we discuss the ways we live today, the choices we make, the things we do, and how they affect our health and well-being. So you're on the corner, the behavioral corner. Please hang around a while. Hi, everybody. Welcome again. It's uh, me, Steve Martorano, hanging, as I always do, here on the behavioral corner, where we talk about everything, because that's what winds up affecting our behavioral health. We hope you have found us. If you have, let us know what you think. If you like it, that's great. If you don't, tell us what's wrong. Um, It's all made possible by our great underwriting partners, Retreat Behavioral Health. They help us not only financially, but in a number of ways. Today will be another example of the help they bring us. We're going to talk about young adults, something we touched upon frequently over the course of behavioral health. Um, Sometimes it seems as though there has never been a more challenging time to be young. I'm sure every generation may feel like that. I certainly don't. I'm an old hippie. We had the greatest time in the world. All we did was run around and do whatever we damn well chose. But it's a challenge for young people today. And we're seeing some of the results of that challenge in what's being described as a mental health crisis among people of a certain age. Uh, You know the list. It's everything from pandemics to climate change worries to, oh, yeah, the college debt. Um, So there's a lot on their plates and some are having difficulties handling it. Those difficulties result in some problems, both in the mental health area and uh, in the area of substance abuse. With us from Retreat Behavioral Health, because we always rely on their expert people to join us and straighten things out, is Caitlin Austin. Caitlin is a primary therapist at Retreat Behavioral Health, and she deals with a lot of young people in these situations. We welcome her to the Behavioral Corner. Hi, Caitlin. How are you? Hi, I'm doing good. Thank you for having me. Uh, Thanks for your time. We appreciate it. Am I wrong? Is it a very extraordinarily challenging time for young people? Yeah, I would definitely have to agree with that, that right now I've seen um, an uptick in young people, young adults, definitely both men and women coming into the facility. I would say that primarily um, what I'm seeing is them with bipolar, um, schizophrenia, they are definitely having schizophrenia mainly because a lot of them are smoking weed at younger ages, and that can um, be transferred into higher rates of schizophrenia, um, Mm -hmm. which we are finding out, which is actually quite interesting. There's been um, many studies done on that. And yeah, as a retired hippie, I never thought I'd reach the point in my life where I'd say that legalization of marijuana for recreational use is a bad idea, but it it seems more and more to be the case that at the, at the, I mean, decriminalization is one thing, you know, endorsing it and selling it and having it available everywhere, I think is going to be a problem that already is, as you point out. Uh, before we get into some of the nitty gritty of how you handle those things with your, uh, with your patients, uh, how long have you been in the field and tell me about your background? So I've been in the field for about two years as a primary therapist. Um, 
I've done everything from being a VHT to um, working at just different facilities, doing other um, jobs. And I I really enjoy it. I've uh, interned at other facilities. And right now I am working as a primary therapist, as you've already said, mm-hmm. uh, through behavioral health. And it's really enjoyable. I really like working there. So let's talk about uh, some of the things that you have, you see a lot of, I mean, bipolar, sometimes it seems to me everyone um, is sooner or later going to be diagnosed as bipolar. What are some of the things that present themselves as bipolar? What should, for instance, people be looking out for? Um, When you are bipolar, I would say that um, high fluctuations of moods, uh, like mood swings, um, either you are very happy or you're extremely irritated, so irritable, restlessness, frustration. Um, Also, uh, maybe you're sleeping a lot. Um, There's very, very challenging mood swings with that kind of um, Mm -hmm. disorder. So it's very hard to um, kind of diagnose sometimes because it comes up as many different things. That one can also be like misconstrued, I would say, with borderline personality disorder, which is another one which is very popular right now, especially in young adults, because that is very prone with families that are dysfunctional. So dysfunctional families, which is very common because alcoholism and addiction is also very common right now. Bipolar, as opposed to personality disorder, does one come before the other in terms of diagnosis? No, uh, I, oh, you're saying bipolar, like one or bipolar two, is that what we're talking about? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, so bipolar one um, is if you're manic, and then bipolar two is if you have hypomania. Well, you know, some of the things you've described, we hyper hypo, I can understand, but some of the things you described, if not all of the things you described, are stuff that we all face, the mm-hmm. anxieties and the stresses and, and all that. And young people, it's exacerbated because they're young. Again, it becomes a problem when it's interfering with your life, correct? Correct. Young people have difficulty... Uh, very young people anyway, have difficulty on impulse control uh, as a sort of normal thing among young people. What is the impact on impulse control when you're bipolar? When you're bipolar, I I would say it is very intense. Uh, Hence the mood swings. I would say you just have a lack of self-regulation and ability um, for distress tolerance no lack of emotional regulation, those mm-hmm. kinds of things. Mm-hmm. Um, all right. So how do we, let's talk about some of the things that uh, you do to treat uh, stuff like this and depression and anxiety. We haven't even touched upon. I don't want to alarm you by the way. And I'll pause for a second. I don't want to alarm you at all, but there is something moving around in your bed, I think behind you or your couch or something. Oh, my two dogs. <laughs> Okay. I just wanted to make sure. I know. They're so bad. <laughs> it was moving and I went, what in the world? Anyway, uh, sorry about Is it that. very are they very loud? No, 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 no. Uh, now in fact, in fact, they they've just gotten comfortable, so they they seem to be okay. <laughs> I know. My boyfriend should be home any minute to like move them. Well, there was a moment there when I wondered whether or not that wasn't your boyfriend. But anyway, uh, <laughs> let let's talk about some of the things that 
uh, you um, treat, how you treat some of these things. Well, what do you do when somebody comes in and they are clinically depressed? They can't get out of bed. And now they've come to you for for help. How do you how do you uh, get them moving again? So I would say um, at first we would definitely recommend that they follow any detox protocols. So going to see the doctors and seeing if they're medication compliant. Um, we put them on a strict medication uh, regimen and then see if that first works. However, we do combine that with daily process groups where we suggest that they go daily, um, see a therapist. Um, uh, we also have um, a slew of therapists that they can meet with, go over CBT or DBT skills. Um, CBT stands for cognitive behavioral therapy, which is uh, anything from worksheets to, um, you know, saying what they're thinking. Um, many of their maladaptive thoughts can be switched to more adaptive thoughts. Mm-hmm. Um, and then DBT would be just a dialectical behavioral therapy, um, which could be something like opposite action for somebody who is depressed. So something like that would be like, if you are depressed, you might not want to get out of bed and go to the group. So instead of laying in bed all day, you would get up and go to group. Um, And someone once described the cognitive behavioral therapy to me. uh, And you tell me if this makes sense to you very simply. He said, if you change the way you think, you'll change the way you behave. Is that pretty much what CBT is all about? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Um, Do most or all of the young people you see uh, self-medicate? Are they are they all on uh, have substance abuse issues as well as the co-occurring mental health stuff? Yeah, I would say that's pretty accurate. The majority, the vast majority of them. And what and what are you seeing? Uh, are you seeing opioid opiates or, or or the whole range? I would say alcohol use disorder and opioid use disorder are like primary, and then um, along with um, marijuana, also being. Are you seeing more? Are you seeing more people with marijuana? They're, they're, they now describe marijuana use disorder as a disorder, right? Mm-hmm. How's that manifested? I mean, it's just people lying around listening to Grateful Dead records, or I can't imagine anybody getting high and listening to Taylor Swift, but what are they, what are they doing when- I mean, abusing? I don't think they're listening to Taylor Swift, no. Yeah. Right. <laughs> right, so what are they, you know, when I, I mean, I think I understand what, what marijuana use disorder is intended to imply, but sometimes I have difficulty figuring out what that means. I mean, does everybody turn into, you know, Cheech and Chong or what? Because you can, you know what I mean? You can- Unlike a lot of other drugs, more serious drugs, certainly alcohol, certainly opioids, you can sort of, you know, operate when you're high on marijuana. I mean, you know, it's it's not as debilitating as uh, I don't think as heroin. So what 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 does marijuana disorder look like? So marijuana use disorder, it cognitively impairs you and as well as your judgment, your ability to take part in life, like you were saying earlier, like inability to go to work. Um, and also your choices are surrounded about getting that substance, you know, getting more, um, the desire to cut down on it. Um, maybe they lack the ability to do so by themselves. So, you know, that might be 
part of the decision as to why they might seek treatment. Um, and that's why I said it's usually seen with another paired with another substance like alcohol or opioid use disorder. Um, not so much just by itself, but it it could be part of another a greater problem. If that makes sense. You know, as they legalize marijuana, both medicinally and now recreationally, uh, particularly in the uh, medicinal area, there was some early suggestion or hope that you could wean people off of things like alcohol or even opioids mm -hmm. and substitute it with marijuana. How do you feel about that idea? Well, I think it depends on the person. I think that uh, I do understand the idea of the lesser of two evils sometimes. Mm -hmm. So I, I'm I'm very I, I'm not very judgmental when it comes to those things. I if somebody has been doing heroin for like 40 years, like say an older person yeah, yeah. and they are now just smoking marijuana and that's the very best that they can do. Um, you know, that is a win for some people, you know, yeah, yeah, and yeah. sometimes we just have to take the win and allow them to live their life um, to the best of their ability. And if that's what they think that they need, then, you know, who am I to judge? Right. Yeah. Well, yeah. And and in the worst case scenario, um, opioid use or, and alcohol uh, can and very often does lead to death. Mm -hmm. um, Marijuana, in my experience, in the worst case, leads to stupidity. Uh, you know, that's why they call it dope. Um, so, uh, yeah, I guess it is an interesting trade-off. Uh, but I don't think anybody in your field, correct me if I'm wrong, is advocating for for that as kind of a, a go-to method. Oh, we're going to get you off this and you can start smoking grass. I mean, it's yeah, not the way no. It's, yeah, that's definitely not like it's not the medical model per se. So there's different models out there and mm -hmm. we definitely don't push for that. We definitely don't. We're not like, OK, like we want you to go to a medical marijuana clinic. No, right. I definitely uh, working at retreat. I would definitely not say that as well. But I'm saying just as um, a therapist, sometimes what we need to do is work in collaboration with a client and where they're at mentally and their motivation for treatment, sometimes in order to get them to be in a better space, we have to be in agreement with them and in alignment on some of these decisions. And I think sometimes um, we have to look at those decisions and, you know, the lesser of two evils is sometimes the better decision versus, you know, them going back to the worst of the mm -hmm. two evils. So. Indeed, indeed. Caitlin Austin is our guest. She's primary therapist with Retreat Behavioral Health. And we're talking about the uh, client base or patient base that she's most familiar with. And that's young adults. We're talking about, what are we talking about? 18 to 24, 25? Is that the age range we're talking about? Yeah, I would say 18 to 24, 25. Yeah. I know a part of the treatment that I've read about involves, you know, basic life skills. So what are, what are some of the things that young people need to get better at in terms of life skills? Um, so, for example, like I was having a group today and a client was saying how one of the things that they really struggled with was just making doctor's appointments. Like 
their parents have had enabled them to the point where they didn't know how to do simple tasks like that because they have always had like a helicopter parent um, taking care of them, doing A, B, and C for them. So when it came time to just, you know, do simple things, they didn't have the wherewithal or understanding on how to do that. So, I mean, just something simple like calling the doctor, like, what do I say to the doctor? How do I handle these conversations? So like effective communication skills are things that even 18 through, like you were saying, 25-year-olds don't really know now. And I don't know if all the technology now, does that play a role? I'm not quite sure. You mean in hindering their basic life skill or life skills? Or, or yeah, I'm not, I'm not sure. I'm not sure how much that plays a part as well. Well, you don't have to spell. You don't have to know to, how to spell. No one uses punctuation anymore. You shouldn't be stumped for any question. I mean, somebody asked you a question, or you just Google it. So, I mean, you can get into a habit of using that phone to do do its thinking for you, which is not a good thing when you're making mistakes, right? Yeah. And I think also to um, even just having to not always see people face to face, especially since we were talking about earlier COVID. Um, I think for people who have social anxiety, naturally, um, that really put a hindrance into um, their ability to communicate effectively as well, because then they didn't need to kind of show up for themselves in the way that they might have needed to. Um, And the substances just also kind of um, allow them to get away with, you know, whatever they needed to. If you're always alone. alone. Uh, Yeah. It's one of the great ironies of social media is that um, while it can gather people together, it has, been shown to isolate too mm-hmm. a great number of people, and that, of course, was writ large during the uh, during the pandemic. Um, so, Caitlin, you're in the field now seven, eight years, uh, ten years, or whatever you said. Uh, you're also in recovery. Yes. Now, five years sober. Yes. Excellent. Uh, can you share your story with us a little bit? When did your substance abuse start, and what shape did it take, and how did you finally get uh, sober? Uh, Yes, I would say that being adopted definitely played a role in my story. Um, I definitely felt like abandoned, the neglect, I can identify with that. Um, So when I was 12 years old, I started using um, weed and alcohol. And I feel like I can identify with people who were maybe misbehaved in high school. I started acting out then I would drink before school and I almost got kicked out for fighting. I, um, (laughs) and it's funny thinking back now, I can never see myself acting that way, but, um, I was just fighting with everyone. Um, you know, I kind of wanted to take out my anger that I felt towards um, my family life, like I had such a dysfunctional family life, a lot of stuff going on. Mm-hmm. Um, my dad was one of eight and he had a lot of alcoholism in his family, which was like hidden. Your, and, adopt, your adopted father or your biological father? Um, my adopted father. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. So my dad was one of eight. He had a lot of um, like alcoholism going on in his family. My dad was beaten as a child. And what I realized by going through recovery is like your parents can only love you with like what they know how to. Right. 
So basically forgiveness and understanding and compassion. And um, at the time when I was younger, when I was in school, I wanted everyone to feel how I felt. So I was very angry. I wanted everyone to feel that anger. So that's why I was fighting. And I almost got expelled. Um, thanks oh, you're, to you were fighting other girls? or who, Yeah, who, other or, girls. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, <laughs> like okay. the older girls, I felt like were picking on me. So I felt like I had to stand up for myself. But like, looking back, it like takes two to fight, takes two sure. to tango, right? Sure. So sure. how well did you uh, hold up against the older girls? I'm just curious. Did you well, hold your, did you hold your own against them? I fought, I did good with one, the other one, no. But then like, they, there's also like online too. I feel like this is when the online stuff started when like right. the, uh, the Facebook stuff and the bullying over online. So I really relate with anyone who felt like bullied, all that stuff. So um, I can identify with that. How bad did the substance abuse get? Pretty bad, pretty quickly, I would say. And I the isolation as well. Yeah, yeah, With and it, an it, boyfriend. It it progressed to uh, how far did it go? I mean, was it basically alcohol and marijuana, or were there harder stuff? No, I started doing um, cocaine, and then um, when I moved to Florida, I started doing um, Molly, which was like big down here, mm-hmm. which is like other stuff. Like it has like someone said it has like meth in it or something, um, and then eventually which is interesting is the guy I started dating when I moved down to Florida, the day I got down to Florida for college, he was like fresh out of detox and brought me to my first AA meeting. And I didn't even know, like you could live life sober. Like I didn't know what that was. And then like, that's kind of how the seed was planted for me to. Yeah. Prior to that first meeting, going to that first meeting with him. Yeah. You were not thinking I got to do something about this, right? No, I didn't know anything. Like, I didn't know there was an issue. Well, this is interesting. Tell me about that. So what were you, so you're sitting in this meeting and you see all these people who are just telling you how, you know, how, how bad it was for them and how good they're doing now. Did you, did you, did you relate to it or how did it affect you? Yeah, no, it was weird because I had never like coming from like my house, like both my parents are retired Navy officers. So they don't share their feelings. Like everyone was sharing their Uh, feelings and being very like open and warm and loving. And I was like, okay, this is like completely different from like what I like grew up with. And then like I was 18, I just got into college, so I wasn't ready. So that's why I said this seed is planted. Okay. Yeah. Did uh, So uh, did you get to treatment? Did you get to formal treatment uh, for uh, substance abuse? No, I never went to treatment, but but the very last time I had used, I thought I needed treatment. And I I always recommend treatment for people because there are people like we were talking about earlier who um, have severe mental health problems. Um, And, you know, I've had times where I needed to definitely see people like psychiatrists for my health um, and also people who are dealing with major substances, like maybe for me, like I, I might've need to see someone for Molly, like coming off meth yeah. or um, 
heroin, for example, you don't really want to come off that cold turkey. You might need to be evaluated by somebody. Um, you could go into seizures, um, anything. So these are really serious issues that um, could occur if you don't go and see medical professionals. Yeah, no, you're absolutely, you're absolutely right. And I know you don't want to suggest to people that, yo, look at me, I just quit. Uh, yeah, but, yeah. <laughs> I, I, I understand that. But the truth is some people just do that. Some people mm-hmm. do mature out of the behavior. Uh, and never and never abuse the substance again. But you're absolutely right. Just because you're stopping that behavior doesn't mean you've dealt with all that stuff underneath. Yeah. You know, that caused the behavior to begin with, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So so yeah, we don't we don't mean to suggest, but uh, you know, you're at least uh, you're absolutely honest about that. So um did the, this is a whole experience. At what point did you go, uh, okay, I've got that together? You were going to go to college. Uh, uh, I don't know how well you would have done if you were still doing Molly, but you stopped <laughs> it. And when did you decide this is something you could do professionally? Um, so after the pan, like during the pandemic, um, well, I would say before the pandemic, I was working for somebody. Um, uh, I don't know if I should say his name. Get to see what I'm going to, but he's in the rooms. And he helped me out. He got me a job at a huh. restaurant down here in Boca. And then the pandemic hit. So um, I I thought, like, wh- what should I do with my life? Like, how can I, like, continue working with people and helping people? And then I thought, like, maybe I should go back to school and become a therapist. So that's what I did. Mm-hmm. And that's how I've been on this trek ever since. It wasn't like I wanted to become this. Like it just kind of happened. Yeah. Funny how things just kind of happen, right? Yeah. 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 So let's, uh, let's, uh, we can wrap this thing up. Caitlin, what, I've been doing this for a very long time on the show. And I often worry that the, uh, no matter what we're talking about with regard mm-hmm. to mental health and substance abuse, I worry that it's too often directed to older people who might not have the problem, but no young people who do. Because mm-hmm. I wonder whether young people would gravitate towards a show that said, hey, get sober. Uh, so <laughs> so if, if there are young people out there or older people now, how do they make that move? How do you say to somebody young who thinks they're invincible, who's making wrong judgments, uh, and and abusing stuff. How do you, can you push them? Can you send them in the right direction? Um, I mean, I would say, honestly, I'm not sure. Like, I feel like I had to hit my bottom with substances. I think that it takes a lot of understanding and listening. I think that that would be the best suggestion is just being there as a person to listen and hear them out. Um, Because maybe they haven't had that uh, Mm -hmm. somebody. Um, Yeah, but we live in an age of fentanyl, so there's not a lot of margin of error. So it's probably worth uh, reminding people that even while they're making bad decisions, you don't get that many chances. Oh, by the way, did you ever uh, have you ever tried to reach out to your biological uh, parents? Yes. Yes. Well, I went on the 23andMe thing. Oh, and you so you but did you meet them? 
No, no, I found um like a, my uncle or something. Like it yeah. wasn't. Oh, you found a family member. Yeah. 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 Um, I just Thank you for whether, asking. That's sweet. <laughs> well, I wonder whether that's some, you know, sometimes whether that's like, you know, the source of your anger was this alienation you felt at being, you know, adopted mm-hmm. and not fitting. Just wondered whether that did it help? I mean, to know that you had like real family out there. Yeah. And I think also finding out that like there was alcoholism in ah. the bloodline of family gave me um, some understanding and just kind of solidified the fact that like, you know, okay, like this is a fact, you know, and I have a predisposition to alcoholism. And once I pick up one drink, then like all bets are off. Ah. Yeah, and sometimes yeah. people need that. Yep, absolutely, absolutely. It well, you know, you weren't unlucky. I mean, you were unlucky in a sense, but at least there's some sort of biological foundation for it. Caitlin Austin, thanks so much for joining us. We appreciate your time. Thank you. And I'm glad we didn't disturb the the dogs. <laughs> I think he's still asleep there. <laughs> Hope he's not on your pillow. Take care. Thank you all for uh, paying attention to us when you do. Don't forget to hit the subscription button. We appreciate that. And we'll catch you next time on the Behavioral Corner. Retreat Behavioral Health has proudly been serving the community for over 10 years. Here at Retreat, we believe in the power of connection and quality care. We offer comprehensive, holistic, and compassionate treatment from industry-leading experts. Call 855 855- 802-6600 or visit us at www.retreatbehavioralhealth.com to begin your journey today. That's it for now. And make us a habit, hanging out at the Behavioral Corner. And when we're not hanging, follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter on the Behavioral Corner.